Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 352, Chaos. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Margot, Aiden, and Amaranda for signing up already. It was November 11th of 1035, and King Canute was dead. He was buried at Winchester Cathedral. Now, it seems that Canute, and also likely the court, anticipated his death, possibly because he'd been ill for some time. But even though they almost certainly knew his death was coming, the fact was that the ruling classes of Europe were still completely unprepared for the chaos that would follow. Consolidating multiple kingdoms under one ruler was a double-edged sword. When it's done well, nations often benefit from greater stability and security. There's less risk of going to war. Kingdoms become less likely to fall to the ambitions of rivals or rebels. And so what Canuta provided the ruling class of his near empire was a chance to grow their wealth in relative peace. Provided, of course, that they played along and they didn't piss him off. But that stability, provided by a strong overking in this medieval system, also meant that the social hierarchy became locked in. The powerful were less likely to fall down the social ladder, but there wasn't much room for anyone to climb up it either. Opportunities for advancement were few and far between. And this was the case even for territories that Canute didn't directly control, because he had become so powerful that neighboring kingdoms began to revolve around the interests of Canute's near empire. Everyone was incentivized to maintain the status quo, and that status quo ultimately served Canute. And it's this ability to define and hold the status quo in a way that benefits the central authority that defines an empire. The economies and peoples of other nations, kingdoms, and lands ultimately all serve the interests of the political center. And in a feudal empire, That means they all ultimately serve the king. Do this long enough and to enough people, and they'll eventually start calling you emperor. And emperors and empires are always parasitic. They feed on and rely on their client states. But often, the client states, which is what political scientists and historians call the subservient countries in an empire, well, they often have reasons for why they might want to stay under the umbrella of that empire, or at least the ruling classes might have their reasons. For example, if you're a king of a small kingdom, and your dynasty has a number of rival dynasties within that kingdom who want your job, and you also have several neighbors who might be eyeing your crown as well, well, signing on as a client to a more powerful king or an emperor might make a lot of sense. Because suddenly, you've got a big friend who can protect you from those rivals. Now, of course, another reason why a kingdom might sign on is because they were forced to at the point of a sword. After all, another characteristic of empire is militarism. And we've already seen plenty of examples of that. But whether a kingdom signs on willingly or is forced to submit, ultimately, the empire becomes the center of all things. All activities eventually work in service to it. And it might help to think of the central authority of an empire as the hub of a wheel. The wheel revolves around it, and all the other parts of the wheel are pointing to it. 
But imagine what happens if the hub suddenly vanishes. In that case, what happens to the spokes? The rim. A spinning wheel that suddenly loses the hub starts to move in ways that weren't possible mere seconds before. And when an empire collapses, suddenly those local dynasties who've been resenting their subservient status become a little more free to resist. Furthermore, a hostile neighbor nation might be able to make a move on a long-standing blood feud with the imperial family. After all, now they might not have to worry about an imperial army marching up to their door. Nations also suddenly become a lot more free to move against client kingdoms that have previously enjoyed imperial protection. Disruptions like this can result in a tremendous amount of political change. But things start to fall apart, too. For example, if you're a merchant who relies on the complex trade agreements that exist across an empire, and then suddenly that overarching bureaucracy goes away, well, the system that enabled your goods to make it to market suddenly start to break down, and then so does your livelihood. Furthermore, craftsmen, traders, and others who rely on those goods to do their own business, well, their lives become upended as well even if they live far away from any of the territorial boundaries of that empire. So the fall of an empire often reaches much farther than the borders of the empire itself. And things that were working might suddenly stop working. And some things that weren't possible, well, suddenly they become a lot more possible. Many times, when an empire collapses, the world order that felt like it was carved out of stone crumbles right along with it. Now, the death of an emperor doesn't necessarily mean the fall of an empire. For example, in the United States, when the term of one president ends, we don't suddenly face a devolution of the nation, upon which we then lock into a series of bloody civil wars to determine the new set of regional nation-states and ruling governments. No, we just put a new person at the head of the empire and just keep rolling right along. Usually. And that's because the American system exists outside of whoever is currently living in the White House. Similarly, medieval feudal empires didn't necessarily collapse when the emperor died. A traditional feudal state existed outside of the king. In fact, that was part of the purpose of that whole system of inheritance and succession, to ensure that the political organization that had been functioning under the monarch or the emperor would be transferred in total to the next person in line. But what Canuta built wasn't structured that way. He'd constructed a political body that didn't really exist on its own. It relied on him specifically, and because of that, it couldn't easily be passed on to the next heir. Rather than functioning as an emperor in the traditional sense, Canute had ruled more like a Bretwalda, as an overlord. And as such, his power was personal. The imperial power that he wielded was centered on him individually, and that's what made his death so dangerous. This wasn't just the loss of a king. It was the loss of the hub that the world order had been building. And sure enough, within weeks of Canute's death, that order began to break down. The Norse people who had been rebelling but were still part of Canute's world order, well, now they proclaimed their leader, Magnus Olafsson, as their king. He would now be King Magnus of Norway. And that declaration challenged the supremacy of Canute's dynasty. And it would now be up to Canute's son, Hartha Canute, who was the king of Denmark, to step up to this challenge and try and restore his father's empire. But Hartha Canute hadn't inherited his father's empire. He was just the king of Denmark. 
Furthermore, Hartha Canute wasn't the only one looking to make moves. This new King Magnus of Norway had plans to potentially make a little empire of his own, and he thought he might start with Denmark. So with Canute practically still warm in the grave, already the posturing and the preparations for war were beginning. And in England, things weren't looking much better. The king was dead. But the throne did actually have a few claimants, which meant that there was a good chance of passing it along without a major devolution or disruption. But unfortunately, while there were people in line for the throne, none of them were a shoo-in. The eldest of the claimants were Edward and Alfred, who were the children of old King Athelred Unred and Queen Emma. And Edward, who was about 30 at this point, was the eldest of all the claimants. And remember, the Anglo-Saxons absolutely considered age and one's birth order when they were looking at succession matters like this. So that was a feather in his cap. Edward had also spent his early life in the English court being groomed for rule. And actually, his time in exile had been in the courts of Normandy, where he was raised as a noble in the Norman style, further preparing him for rule. So despite being kicked off the island for about 20 years, Edward would have presented himself as a man well-qualified for the throne. But he wasn't a son of Canute. Instead, he was the son of the man that Canute defeated. Furthermore, there were plenty of people who could still remember how badly Edward's father had run things. And this was on top of the fact that he wasn't even in England. He was in France. And location was something that very much mattered when it came to this stuff. So despite his age, and despite the fact that he was the son of a king of England, Edward wasn't exactly a lock for the throne. And needless to say, his younger brother, Alfred, was in even worse shape, having all those same problems, along with the fact that he wasn't the eldest. The next eldest were Canute and Elfgifu's sons, Swain and Harold Harefoot. And it's possible that the people in England weren't yet aware that Swain had died in Denmark. All of that would have been contingent on the speed in which news could travel and the timing of Swain's death. But even if they thought he was alive, the English court probably didn't spend all that much time considering him, given that Swain was already appointed as a king of Norway and he'd done such a bad job of it that he had to flee to Denmark. And Swain's brother, Harold Harefoot, who would have been about 19 or 20 at this point, well, he was old enough to rule, and he was a son of Canute. However, we can't discount the fact that there were nasty rumors circulating that Harold wasn't actually Canute's son. These rumors insisted that actually, Elfgifu had faked the pregnancy, and Harold was the bastard son of a cobbler. And rumors like that, even if they're spurious, could seriously damage a claim to the throne. There was also the fact that he was a child of Elfgifu, not Emma. And because the church didn't really honor Scandinavian marriage, there was an additional question of legitimacy that was hanging over poor Harold. And even if he overcame that hurdle and proved that actually Elfgifu's union with Canute was a recognized marriage, there was still the problem that Elfgifu wasn't a consecrated queen. And the status of your mother could also impact your claim to the throne. So Harold's claim was a bit shaky, especially considering that Emma was a consecrated queen. And she also had a recognized marriage with Canute. And worst of all, she had a son with him who was still very much alive. Hartha Canute. Now, Hartha Canute was just a teenager at this point. 
but that didn't mean he wasn't ready to rule. In fact, he was so ready to rule that he was already ruling over Denmark and striking coins listing him as king. Furthermore, the praise of Queen Emma states that the conditions of Emma's marriage to Canute were that any child of theirs would supersede any child from any previous unions, meaning that their children would automatically be first in line. So not only was Hartha Canute experienced, he also allegedly had legal backing that stated that he was first in line for the throne. However, there was the small matter of precedent when it came to that contract. You see, assuming that it actually existed, and we only hear about it from the praise of Queen Emma, so we can't know for certain that this did exist, but assuming that it did, Canute violated that contract in 1030 when he appointed Swain as king of Norway, and Swain was Elfgifu's son, not Emma's. So that could indicate that Canute had actually decided to rip up that contract, and now the sons of Elfgifu were eligible for inheritance. And that revelation would be important because Elfgifu's son, Harold, just like Swain, was older than Hartha Canute. Not only that, but Hartha Canute was ruling all the way over in Denmark as a king. And as I said before, proximity matters. In fact, if you've been following closely, you might have noticed that all of the claimants were living outside of England. All of them, except for one. Harold Harefoot. He was the only one in England, and he was actually in Mercia at the time, which also meant that he was outside of the reach of his main political rival, Queen Emma. She was in the South. Now, she obviously wanted her sons to inherit, and based on what we see in the praise and in the chronicle, she was working double time to get that done. And don't forget that thanks to Canute's many absences from the kingdom, her power, and also the power of Earl Godwin, had been growing substantially over the years. And this all put the highest-ranked men in England in a difficult position. As the Witan, they would be the ones who would choose the next king. But there were incredibly powerful interests in play, and no clear frontrunner. So a council was called at Oxford to settle the matter. And the two leading claimants to consider were Emma's son, Hartha Canute, and Elf Gifu's son, Harold Harefoot. And when Harold was presented as Canute's son by Elf Gifu, the chronicle actually gets downright spicy, with the scribes adding, quote, though it was not true, end quote. And this is wildly out of character for the chronicle. And I have to assume that this meant that the whisper campaign against Elf Gifu and her son had been working. And he was likely widely believed to be illegitimate, at least in the South where the scribes were working. And that wouldn't be too surprising, as it would have been Wessex where Queen Emma would have had the most influence. And sure enough, we're told that Earl Godwin and all of the leading men of Wessex stated that Emma's son, Hartha Canute, should be the one to inherit the throne. But while Earl Godwin and Queen Emma were certainly powerful figures in English politics, they weren't the only powerful figures. Elderman Leofrich of Mercia had deep roots in England. His father, Leofwina, had been the elderman of the Weiche back in the days of Athelred, and it's thought that Leofrich's brothers held important positions in that same court. In fact, one of his brothers may have been the elusive man named Northman, who was executed by Canute shortly after he took the throne. Furthermore, some historians theorize that Leofrich also shared familial ties with Elfgifu, the mother of Harold Harefoot. And most importantly, 
Elderman Leofric governed the vast and the economically and militarily powerful region of Mercia. And Leofric wanted Harold to rule. And he wasn't alone. He was joined by almost all of the leading men north of the Thames, as well as the shipmen of London. So basically every non-West Saxon noble who got a vote sided with Harold Harefoot. And we're told that Earl Godwin resisted this as long as he could. And it's possible that due to that resistance, concessions were made. Elderman Leofrich and his faction got what they wanted. Harold Harefoot would govern all of England. But there was a caveat that was added. He would govern all of England, quote, for himself and his brother Hartha Canute, who was in Denmark, end quote. That's a really strange condition to place on this. And it's likely that they were trying to thread the needle of Emma's succession demands while still giving the throne to Harold, who was their preferred candidate and who was actually in England. But with that condition, Harold was proclaimed King Harold of England. But there was a small problem. Emma was in the capital of Winchester, along with the king's household. And, you know, all of the king's stuff. And apparently, she also had a boatload of resentment about the Witan's choice. So there she was, with all the king's stuff in the king's capital. But according to the council, all of that, along with the king's treasure, was now Harold's. Because Harold was king. But it really was an open question as to whether or not Emma would agree with that. So the Chronicle tells us that King Harold sent troops to Winchester to confront Emma. And we're not given a blow-by-blow account of how it was handled, or even whether things got violent. But we are told that the troops seized treasures and possessions, which we can assume was the royal treasury. But they also let Emma remain with Hartha Canute's soldiers and huscarls in Winchester, which she appears to have governed in her son's absence. And that, like the condition, was an unusual agreement. Emma had no family ties to King Harold. The only tie that they had had died along with King Canute. And it's not like she'd been all that friendly of a stepmother when Canute had been living. And yet, even though Harold had triumphed and claimed the throne, he was allowing her to keep the capital city, which also happened to be the seat of West Saxon power. And she was governing it on behalf of Hartha Canute. That's extraordinary, and it's hard to see this as anything less than a demonstration of Emma's political power, and also the political power of Earl Godwin, who had been supporting her claims. In fact, were it not for the support of Godwin, I think this could have played out very differently. But with the treasury seized and Emma being allowed to reside in Winchester, at last the conflict was settled, and Canute's son Harold, who was now 19 or 20, was reigning as king of England. Things were finally getting back on track, and we might start to see some stability again, and perhaps, with the half-brothers working together, we might actually start to see a return of that imperial power that Canute had wielded. But meanwhile, across the channel, there were a couple brothers who weren't all that pleased about what happened at the Witan. After all, their claims didn't even get a mention, so they started to draw up plans. It was time for another Norman invasion. And this time, it looks like they checked the weather. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on social media. We're all over the place, and you can find links to all those communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.